The earth is the mother of all people, and all people should have equal rights upon it. You might as well expect all rivers to run backward as that any man who was born a free man should be contented, penned up, and denied liberty to go where he pleases. That's a quote from Chief Joseph of the Native American Wallowa Band of Nespers, who in the 1870s led his people through a tumultuous period of forced removal from their ancestral lands by the United States federal government. With that, we welcome you to episode seven of two old white guys with the audacity and arrogance to discuss racism in America. This is Bob Villa from Florida with an assist from my wife, Ann Baker. Welcome, Ann. Thank you. Appreciate it. And later on, we'll be hearing from my co-host, Rob Comas from California. In our previous episode, we examined in detail the history of discrimination towards African-Americans in the United States. As we defined previously, de jure discrimination refers to any discriminatory action against or behavior towards a targeted group of people that is sanctioned by government enacted laws. In this episode, we will examine de jure discrimination towards Native Americans. It's another example of what we too often ignore about our country's past and present and in many cases, the severe dark side of many of the decisions made by leaders of this country. For Native Americans, it's been a terrible example. Now, as we uh, begin this journey, I'm reminded of the words from a song some years ago by the band Talking Heads. A question that they ask in one of their songs is, how did I get here? Well, for us, how did the United States who had fought and won a war to gain independence from the British Empire, get to a place where the Native Americans, who had lived and prospered way before Europeans came, end up as second-class citizens or even non-citizens. Well, for us, a good place to start is the early part of the 19th century. Andrew Boxer, writing for the History Review issue in September 2009, stated, Quote, in 1831, the U.S. Supreme Court attempted to define Native American status. Chief Justice John Marshall declared that Indian tribes were domestic dependent nations whose relation to the United States resembles that of a ward to his guardian. Now, looking back at that decision, almost 200 years ago, the United States government could pose another question from the same song from Talking Heads. What have I done? Uh, This issue of guardianship took on a new life as residential schools for Native Americans were created, and the long-term results of guardianship continues today. In 1995, David Wallace Adams, in his book, Education for Extinction, American Indians and the Boarding School Experience from 1875 to 1928, stated, Quote, One of the strongest civilizing tools available, the boarding school, whether on or off the reservation, was the institutional manifestation of the government's determination to completely restructure the Indians' minds and personalities. Officials used a variety of means to obtain students. Although persuasion was the much-preferred method for filling school rosters, 
When met with resistance, many U.S. authorities turned to a more coercive means to obtain children, including the withholding of rations and the use of military force. Further on, writing in uh, magazine America, the Jesuit Review in October of last year, Maka Black Elk and Wick, uh, William Menner cited one very specific example and the institutional rules governing it. Quote, when the Holy Rosary Mission was founded on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota in 1888, many of the Jesuits and the Franciscan sisters who established the mission learned the Lakota language. More than 300 boarding schools were funded by the government and often run by various Christian denominations. Like the boarding school at Holy Rosary Mission, these schools were places where aspects of indigenous cultures were unwelcomed and prohibited. Long hair was cut, given names were changed, and traditional dress was banned at most of these schools, including Holy Rosary Mission. I found it ironic, said a survivor of the mission, about having his hair cut. They told me one thing, and then they showed us Christ on the cross, who had long hair. So, uh, sidebar note, this past summer, Ann and I uh, traveled through the upper Midwest and had the occasion to visit a similar school in Montana. It was founded in the 1880s by a religious organization, which uh, maintains a parish on the site today. In the visitor center, there were photos of the children over the years who had attended the schools. And well, yeah, the photos were exactly as that survivor of the Holy Rosary Mission had described. All the young Native Americans, all with their hair cut, wearing the same Anglo outfits decade after decade up to the 1950s. Well, now let's turn to something as basic as citizenship. In June of last year, the National Constitutional Center wrote, Quote, the 14th Amendment's ratification in July 1868 overturned Dred Scott and made all persons born or naturalized in the United States citizens with equal protection and due process under the law. But for American Indians, interpretations of the amendment immediately excluded most of them from citizenship. There is a clause in the 14th Amendment, quote, excluding Indians not taxed, unquote, prevented Native American men from receiving the right to vote when African American men gained suffrage in 1868. So why were Native Americans excluded? Well, we need not look much further than recorded statements made in the U.S. Congress. And here's something from the Office of the Congressional Globe, printed in 1868. Two particularly egregious statements are the following. Quote, I am not yet prepared to pass a sweeping act of naturalization by which all the Indian savages, wild or tame, belonging to a tribal relation are to become my fellow citizens and go to the polls and vote with me, argued Michigan Senator Jacob Howard at the time. And this. On May 28th, 1868, Representative James Michael Cavanaugh of Montana told the House, quote, 
I will say I like an Indian better dead than living. I have never in my life seen a good Indian except when I have seen a dead Indian. Well, let's just pause at that and think about that for a second. Now, two years later, there remained enough confusion after the 14th Amendment was ratified about American Indian citizenship that in 1870, the Senate Judiciary Committee was asked to clarify the issue. And what was their decision? And here, the, the National Constitutional Center continued. Quote, it was clear that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution has no effect whatever upon the status of the Indian tribes within the limits of the United States, but that straggling Indians were subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. At the time, U.S. Census figures showed that just 8% of American Indians were classified as taxed and eligible to become citizens. The estimated American Indian population in the 1870 census was larger than the population of five states and 10 territories, with 92% of those American Indians ineligible to be citizens. Okay, so let's take this one step further. In 1876, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Native Americans were not citizens as defined by the 14th Amendment, and thus not permitted to vote. And that did not change until 48 years later, when on June 2nd, 1924, uh, President Calvin Coolidge signed into law the Indian Citizen Act. Now, we have to keep in mind, however, that the right to vote, however, is governed by state law, as the Constitution gave states the right to determine voting rights with the exception of the 15th and 19th Amendments. And it was not until 1962 that all states fully guaranteed voting rights for Native Americans. Uh, and, and here's a, a pointed response to de jure discrimination towards Native Americans. Uh, and this was reported by Dana Hedgebeth of the Washington Post in November of 2020. Quoting from Dana Hedgepath. Private Ralph W. Anderson, a Navajo, who was among the roughly 25,000 Native Americans that had served in the U.S. Army in World War II, wrote about the U.S. policies that kept him and other Native Americans from voting. In his May 4, 1943 letter from Fort Knox, Kentucky, he wrote, we all know Congress granted the Indian citizenship in 1924, but we still have no privilege to vote. We do not understand what kind of citizenship you would call that. So during World War II, the United States government, its people and its allies fought a long and painful war against fascism and totalitarianism a war against those peoples and governments who oppressed and murdered simply because of a some because of someone's origins but back home the oppression in many forms continued especially against native americans and african americans you know looking back there've been have the question that we're posing is have there been attempts throughout the years that could have changed the course for native americans 
Well, in our research, we decided to look at President uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who had an opportunity to move the course in history regarding Native Americans in a positive way. After the presidency of Andrew Johnson, American turned to the man who helped defeat the Confederacy and unite the country. In her 2018 book, Interrupted Odyssey, Ulysses S. Grant and the American Indians, Mary Stockwell stated, quote, The man elected president in 1868, Ulysses S. Grant, understood citizenship. As he saw it, anyone could become an American, not just people like himself who could trace their ancestry back eight generations to Puritan New England. Grant was sworn into office as president in 1869 and set forth his vision in his first inaugural address. Calling American Indians the original occupants of the land, he promised to pursue any course of action that would lead to their ultimate citizenship. Okay, so once in office, uh, Grant created a peace policy, which on the surface uh, appeared to be a, a positive development, uh, such as and the corruption within the Indian Bureau by remove, uh, removing the agents who supervised the reservations and replace them with Christian missionaries whom he deemed morally superior and whom would treat the Indians with dignity. And then finally, it would help make peace with the various tribes. To assist in addressing these issues, Grant appointed Eli Parker, a member of the Seneca tribe as head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and helped establish a board of Indian commissioners to oversee uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. During the Civil War, Parker served on Grant's staff and assisted with drafting the surrender documents that Confederate General Robert E. Lee signed at Appomattox Courthouse. Now, some Indian tribes supported Grant's efforts at peace. For example, example uh, a delegation of Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, and Chickasaw leaders praised Grant at the beginning of his presidency. However, uh, from the very beginning, conflicting issue remained unresolved. An article written for the National Park Service entitled President Ulysses S. Grant and Federal Indian, Indian Policy uh, dug into these issues. Quote, Leaders of various Indian nations demanded that previous treaties with the U.S. government be upheld and that their lands be protected from this onslaught of settlers. Grant tried to juggle multiple desires. On the one hand, he called for reform in the Bureau of Indian Affairs and peaceful relations with Native Americans. On the other hand, he supported continual population growth in the West through settler migration and territorial expansion. And Grant's efforts to reform failed quickly, um, as Stockwell documented. Quote, Grant and Parker were so certain of the wisdom of their policy that they failed to see how many people opposed it. Congressmen, who had previously rewarded the supporters with jobs in the Indian service, resented the fact that Grant had taken away these plum positions. The Board of Indian Commissioners remained determined to oppose Grant. William Welsh, the board's first chairman, believed the president's policy could be overturned by toppling the savage who stood at its center, Eli Parker. Well, 
uh, within a year, Congress enacted legislation recognizing the members of the Board of Indian Commissioners as the actual supervisors of the Indian Service. Uh, unfortunately, and, and as a result of this uh, legislation, Parker realized that he had no real power and resigned his position as the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in 1871. And uh, Grant's policies towards the Indians quickly fell far short of what he had promised as white settlers continued to push Indians off the land and they relied on the army to prevent retaliation. And while Indians on reservation experienced poverty and increased desperation, Grant oversaw the completion of the first transcontinental railroad and the great slaughter of buffalo on the plains, which destroyed much of the Native American economy. Stockwell continued, quote, The peace policy, ironically, led to some of the worst massacres in history. Grant's strategy to contain Indians on reservations involved aggressive military pursuits resulting in the Modoc War in California, the Red River War in Texas, and the Nez Perce conflict in Oregon. The Black Hills campaign by General George Armstrong Custer and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Uh, some further research. Um, Clifford Trefzer in uh, writing American Indians, American Presidents, A History, 2009 summarize the unfortunate and actual result of Grant's peace initiatives. Quote, in reality, the peace policy rested on the belief that Americans had the right to dispossess native peoples of their lands, take away freedoms and send them to reservations where missionaries would teach them how to farm, read and write, wear Euro-American clothing and embrace Christianity. If Indians refused to move to reservations, they would be forced off their homelands by soldiers. And one final insult. Two years into his presidency, just two years, Grant signed the Indian Appropriations Act of 1871, which ceased federal recognition of tribes as entities, quote, with whom the United States may contract by treaty, end quote. The act ended the government's treaty-making process and the practice of acknowledging tribes as sovereign nations. Moving on to the issue of the land itself, the land that had been uh, the Native Americans, and then the land to where Indian reservations were established. John Mahan, in his 1991 book, History of the Second Seminole War, 1835, to 1842 wrote, quote, under President James Monroe, Secretary of War John C. Calhoun devised the first plans for Indian removal. Monroe approved Calhoun's plans by late 1824 and in a special, special message to the Senate on January 27, 1825, requested the creation of the Arkansas and Indian territories the Indians east of the Mississippi would voluntarily exchange their lands for lands west of the river. The Senate accepted Monroe's request and asked Calhoun to draft a bill, which was killed in the House of Representatives by the Georgia dele delegation. 
President John Quincy Adams assumed the Calhoun-Monroe policy and was determined to remove the Indians by non-forceful means. Georgia refused to consent to Adams' request, forcing the president to forge a treaty with the Cherokees granting Georgia the Cherokee lands. On July 26, 1827, the Cherokee Nation adopted a written constitution modeled on that of the United States, which declared that they were an independent nation with jurisdiction over their own lands. Georgia contended that it would not countenance a sovereign state within its own territory and asserted its authority over Cherokee territory. And later on in his book, Mahan stated, quote, when Andrew Jackson became president as the candidate of the newly organized Democratic Party, he agreed that the Indians should be forced to exchange their eastern lands for western lands, including relocation and vigorously enforced Indian removal. Now, as, as we move further into the 19th century, the Dawes Act, uh, the General Allotment Act, was established. As explained by Andrew Boxer in History Review from September 2009, quote, Federal policy was enshrined in the General Allotment Act of 1887, which decreed that Indian reservation land was to be divided into plots and allocated to individual Native Americans. These plots could not be sold for 25 years, but reservation land left over after the distribution of allotments could be sold to outsiders. Uh, in the book, Lone Wolf versus Hitchcock uh, by Blue, Car uh, Blue Clark, uh, further, treaty rights and Indian law at the end of the 19th century. In 1999, he documented this particular situation further. Quote, in 1900, without Native American consent, Congress passed an allotment act that divided the Kiowa Comanche lands into the 160 acre allotments to give to the Native American residents of the reservation. Those who accepted the allotments were also given American citizenship. The surplus lands left after the allotment were to be sold to whites, and the Kiowa and the Comanche were to receive about $1 per acre for these lands. So this meant that the act became, in practice, an opportunity for predominantly white Americans with the Go West Young Man motto to acquire Indian land. This process was especially accelerated by the 1903 Supreme Court decision in Lone Wolf versus Hitchcock case, which stated that Congress could dispose of Indian land without gaining the consent of the Indians involved. Frank Parmershine stated in Broken Landscape, Indians, Tribes, in the Constitution in 2009 wrote, Quote, this decision was based on the idea that Indians held dependent status to the United States government. Calling Native Americans, quote, the wards of the nation, unquote, Supreme Court Justice Edward Douglas White stated that, quote, from the Indians' very weakness and helplessness, so largely due to the course of dealing of the federal government with them and the treaties in which it has been promised, 
there arises the duty of protection and with it the power. The result, Boxer summarized. Quote, not surprisingly, the amount of Indian land shrank from 154 million acres in 1887 to a mere 48 million half a century later. So um, as we research the treatment of Native Americans, another presidency stood out that clearly steered the direction of the treatment of Native Americans by the U.S. government. And that's the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. Now, many of Roosevelt's accomplishments have been well documented, as noted in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Quote, in 1903, Roosevelt helped Panama gain its independence from Colombia. In supporting Panama, Roosevelt cleared the way for the building of a canal across the Isthmus of Panama. He won the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1906 for mediating an end to the Russo-Japanese War. Also in 1906, Roosevelt persuaded Congress to pass food and safety acts to protect consumers and to investigate the poor conditions of food processing industries. Cindy Millicus, the University of Virginia Miller Center, summarized the legacy of Roosevelt's presidency. Quote, Roosevelt believed that the government had the right and the responsibility to regulate big business so that its actions did not negatively affect the general public. But how did Roosevelt, how did TR view the Native Americans? Did he fight for them as vigorously? Did he consider them part of the general public? Well, history tells us no, he did not. In fact, his view of Native Americans made it clear that they were not given equal consideration. Timothy Stanley, writing in History Today in March 2012, quoted Theodore Roosevelt from a January 1886 speech that he gave in New York City. Quote, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are the dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every 10 are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the 10th. Melissa Landry in Indian County today, September, 2018 wrote, Quote, although he earned a reputation as a conservationist, placing more than 230 million acres of land under public protection, Roosevelt systematically marginalized Indians, uprooting them from their homelands to create national parks and monuments, speaking publicly about his plans to assimilate them and using them as spectacles to build his political empire. Now, Earlier in this episode, we documented the schools that Native Americans were sent to. And one item that was mentioned was the cutting of young man's hair. And uh, where did that come from? From Landry. Quote, in January 1902, five months into Roosevelt's presidency, Commissioner of Indian Affairs William Jones issued a letter to superintendents of federal agencies and reservations demanding that Native men cut their hair. This famous haircut order argued that the wearing of short hair by the males will be a great step in advance and will certainly hasten their progress towards civilization. 
Now, if the information that we've just given you has not persuaded anyone about the government's view, and in this case, Theodore Roosevelt, of Native Americans and how they should be treated, we offer these words taken directly from Roosevelt's book, The Winning of the West. He explained that the U.S. action towards American Indians were part of the bigger picture of colonialism. And I quote directly from the book, all men of sane and wholesome thought must dismiss with impatient contempt the plea that these continents should be reserved for the use of scattered savage tribes. Most fortunately, the hard, energetic, practical men who do the rough pioneer work of civilization in barbarous lands are not prone to false sentimentality. The people who are, these stay-at-homers who are too selfish and indolent, too lacking in imagination, to understand the race importance of the work which is done by their pioneer brethren in wild and distant lands. The most ultimately righteous of all wars is a war with savages, American and Indian, Boer and Zulu, Cossack and Tatar, New Zealander and Maori. In each case, the victor, horrible though many of his deeds are, has laid deep the foundations for the future greatness of a mighty people." End quote. Well, we now turn to my co-host, Rob Comas. Rob, what are your thoughts? I am appalled by what we have just discussed. I am, however, not surprised, sadly. And yet I feel a need to pull this conversation in a slightly different direction. One of my favorite historical podcasters, Dan Carlin, once said that when creating a new podcast, his can be as lengthy as 20 plus hours over five, six episodes, he struggles with where to start. History, life, the universe all exist on a continuum. And if one wishes to describe a series of events, well, then which is the first event? One might tell how event one led to event two and then to three and four and so on. But what precipitated event one? What sequence of events produced the environment and circumstances that meant that even event one was inevitable? Event zero? And what led to event zero, event negative one? And so on back in time. And yet an historian must start somewhere. And so they do but it seems to be not such an easy thing to do. Several years ago, I read Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, The Bully Pulpit, a biography of Theodore Roosevelt. Hey, great. Uh, it sounds interesting. Why don't you tell us about it? At least it started out to be a biography of TR. But what she soon discovered was that to tell the TR story well, she needed to also tell the story of William Howard Taft and the emergence of investigative journalism. Hence the full title, The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft and the Golden Age of Journalism. Suffice to say, writing and telling history is difficult. Of course, not only because of this quandary of where to begin, but especially because of the biases we bring to interpreting and telling of the history. So please remember that Bob and I are not historians. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I, I would never claim to be a historian, just somebody who's done some research. We do not know where to start, nor do we know where to end. And our research is light years from comprehensive. We are merely attempting to describe to you where we are at, where the two old guys are in this pursuit of a better understanding of our world. So you've heard a good dose of Bob in the first part of this episode. I would now like to offer some thoughts to follow up on Bob's research. I read the TR biography and came to appreciate in ways I had not previously some of the great things TR did. At the same time, I came to abhor some of the truly evil things that he did. Okay, Rob, um, let, let's pin you down. What would be your overall opinion of Theodore Roosevelt? I found TR to have had a significantly positive effect in ways I was not aware of on America as president. And I found this book, as with other uh, Kearns Goodwin's books, to be well-written, captivating, and looking through this white man's green eyes, a fair and balanced description of Roosevelt. And then several years later, Bob, you come along and begin researching the genocide of Native Americans. And you bring a magnifying glass perspective to likely the darkest and most frightening sides of the man, his horrifyingly poisonous prejudice against Native Americans. Well, yeah, it uh, was painful research in, in reading about him. You know, I had read books when I was a kid about him, and this is not this is not who was portrayed in those books. Um, on top of witnessing some of the results of his prejudice during my travels this summer. So how do we proceed in this historical examination? I would at this point like to bring a bit of balance to the discussion of TR and Grant, not to diminish Bob's research, which I believe to be fair and accurate, but rather to widen the picture frame as we look back, knowing that no matter how wide or narrow our view, the genocide of American Native Americans sits in the middle of that frame. Well, exactly. Sure. So why don't you talk about some of your key takeaways from the biography, from, from the book that you've read? Bob, you briefly mentioned some of the, uh, some of the things that I will continue to discuss right here. So there's a little bit of repetition. Bear with us on that. Roosevelt sought through enforcement of the Sherman Antitrust Act to better the balance of power between labor and management. He sought a quote, square deal, end quote, for laborers in particular, but also for management and ultimately laid the groundwork for breaking up the monopolistic standard oil. Through his, the use, uh, through his use of the bully pulpit, in the political arena, Roosevelt helped to support and bolster the role of the press. In particular, this fostered the relatively new development of investigative journalism, muckrakers, a critically necessary institution of a democratic society. Roosevelt set aside 200 million acres for national forests, reserves, and wildlife refuges. And yet he hunted wild game for pleasure and sport, and of that 200 million acres, perhaps as much as 86 million was taken from Native American tribes, stolen from
from the tribes. Roosevelt won a Nobel Peace Prize for helping to end the Russo-Japanese War. And yet he played a significant role in the Spanish-American War, which led to the, most would argue, unjust deaths of anywhere from 200,000 to 1 million Filipinos. And Roosevelt was the first president to entertain a black man, Booker T. Washington, at the White House. Wow, the first president, huh? Uh, well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised about it, but that, that statement is something that I was definitely not aware of. And yet, Roosevelt viewed Native Americans as savage and inferior on the human hierarchy. Yes, Roosevelt held views of a human hierarchy. So how do we see this man? Great man? Demon? Both? Do we raise statues in praise of such a man? Do we put his face on top of a mountain carved in stone? I've also recently read Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses S. Grant. I found Grant to be a remarkable historical figure, more so than Teddy Roosevelt. A great man, but a much too trusting president. Unless we chalk this up entirely to the prejudice that comes with my and Chernow's white supremacy, I need to add an interesting piece to this puzzle. The reason I wanted to read about Grant was because when asked about which presidents he most respected, Ta-Nehisi Coates replied, Lincoln and Grant. Lincoln, I expected. Grant, I did not. So I set out to learn more about Grant. And yes, I found Grant to be flawed. Bob has provided some of those flaws for us. But as with Roosevelt, perhaps more so, I found that his net effect was positive. With my current understanding, I have great respect for Grant. Okay, Rob. So where does that leave us? Leave you and me, us, us two old white guys who are examining racism in America. Where does it leave us as we look back on the lives and the actions of these two men? I would suggest that the deeds of Grant and Roosevelt, the good deeds overshadowed they're evil ones. I believe we've been blind to the dark deeds in unbalanced favor of the good deeds on all white historical figures. And this must be corrected. But in correcting this myopia, do we now reverse the imbalance and blind ourselves to good in favor of the evil? I would say we do not. I would say we need to learn to see all aspects of a person, the good and the evil, and be able to be at least accepting, if not comfortable with this. We are all imperfect beings and should be taken in our entirety. Well, okay. Good way to start wrapping up this episode. And so what we've documented here today are a few of the many instances where discrimination dramatically impacted Native Americans. In our previous episode, uh, author Richard Rothstein wistfully pronounced a number of decisions made by various governments that, if decided differently, could have dramatically altered the course of discrimination towards Black Americans and the course of Black America as, it's, as a whole. As we close out, we will use his model in reference to Native Americans. Here's our thoughts. 
If only white Americans vision for the boarding school was not kill the Indian, save the man, as explained by one of their architects, General Richard Henry Pratt, the schools might have avoided the process that systematically broke apart Native American families. If only President Grant had not treated all Native Americans as one monolithic group and instead recognized the difference among each tribe and had not insisted that the U.S. government had the right to force Native Americans into reservations. By doing so, the government could have avoided, reduced, minimized the damage they did to Native sovereignty, independence, and culture. If only Native Americans were given the right to vote in the 1800s, they would have had more say in how they were governed, how their school districts and counties were drawn up, and they would have had the ability to give input on how parks, hospitals, roads, water lines, libraries, and more were created. If only Theodore Roosevelt had seen Native Americans as Americans and included them in his fight against monopolies and mediated disputes with the tribes as he did with foreign countries that garnered him the Nobel Peace Prize. If only he had viewed them as people and not savages and that their land was rightfully theirs, perhaps tribal nations would not have lost 99% of their historical territory. Well, as we wrap up, we look forward to your comments, especially if you see flaws or errors in our logic. Or if you don't see them, well, we hope that you'll share our words for others to hear. And Anne, Rob, and I thank you. You're welcome. As a reminder, our email address is 2 at gmail.com. Peace out. <laughs>